Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and Merry Christmas. This episode falls on Christmas Eve and the end of our season of Advent as we enter into the 12 days of Christmas. I hope this time is filled with celebration and reflection and really whatever goodness that we can conjure in the midst of 2020. Today I talk with Aaron Corey. Aaron is a doula and in this conversation we talk a lot about birth. I want to recognize in this season that as we talk about pregnancy and birth and as we have talked about it, that there is so much trauma associated with birth, pregnancy, pregnancy loss, and the cultural shame associated with it. I want to recognize this pain and acknowledge that the limitations of these conversations are certainly not neutral. I'm still learning how to be more holistic in all of these conversations and have a long way to go, so thank you for your patience. I also want to note that I will be taking most of January away. Well, off. I'm not going anywhere because we're still in a freaking pandemic. So expect us to kick off next season at the end of January slash the first week of February. Please continue these conversations online and get pumped for the next season of Reclaiming Our Theology from White Supremacy, because what we have planned is a doozy. So with that, enjoy this conversation with Aaron Corey. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me for this last week of Advent. As this episode comes out, it will be Christmas Eve and tomorrow will be Christmas. So thank you for taking the time during this season to to talk with me. So grateful. I feel like I need to start singing the Muppet Christmas Carol, but I won't. But that's great. (laughs) That's one of my housemates' favorite movies is Muppet Christmas Carol, which I have not seen. If your housemate is a white woman, (laughs) it's part of our bread and butter. A white man, so close enough. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So he's got a white mom. So that. Yeah. (laughs) It'll do that. Well, Erin, so for folks who don't know you, I'd love for them to get to know you a little bit. As I ask every guest, Erin, what does it mean to be you? Uh, What does it mean to be me? I am a human who lives in what is now known as Rhode Island. I am a white American who was raised overseas for my whole life until I was 18. I am a mother and I have birthed two humans. I have a husband that I married at the age of 21. Wow. And that is definitely related to purity culture, but we're still married. So that's great. Um, (laughs) I (laughs) am presently a birth doula. I've been a birth doula for over a year. And I started a group called Ezra Birth Collective It is not called Easier Birth Collective, which is what I fear everyone who's not a Christian who reads my name thinks that it is, but it's (laughs) Ezer Birth Collective. And we're a network of white birth workers who give back 50% of profit of every birth that we do to black, brown, queer, indigenous birth workers in our state so that Mm. more folks can be in the work to try to close racist maternal and infant health outcomes. That is a huge passion of mine. Uh, I also facilitate a lot of anti-racism work for white Christians with Subculture Incorporated. I work in IDEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is all the buzz in 2020. (laughs) And that is what I do uh, at a Catholic college here in Rhode Island. That's a lot of complicated intersectional work. I think the best response is that's a lot because it is. (laughs) It is a lot. And that's from someone who's usually doing kind of a lot, but I think just I'm, I'm aware of the complexity of the of the intersection of those things, and that tackling or to use nonviolent language, I suppose, approaching work like that is a certain type of exhausting, but that clearly is coming out of your passions and experiences, which I love. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But I I do think 
we'll see how long I can be this present in that many intersections at one time. So I'm really taking like a year (laughs) and we'll see. That makes sense. Yes. Being the first thing you said about yourself is that you're human. And I think that that does mean like, yeah, what are our boundaries and what are our limitations in how we do work, even if it's good work? Because I think a lot of us, as we become post-evangelical, die on the altar instead of religiosity of good work. And yes, because we don't want people to experience what we did. Or we want to ex- expedite our own healing, our community's healing, without actually realizing that we sacrifice ourselves and our well-being. It's still, I'm a very useful engine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a lot of pride in how much I can get done. So it just, you know, <laughs> that's just how it works. Yes, no, it's true. And it gives us something to show for our lives beyond our lives, which should, in theory, be enough. Amen. Amen. That's probably the greatest gift that birthing two people has begun to teach me, mm. you know. That's so good. Is that nothing will upend your capacity like tiny humans. So yeah, it is a gift (laughs) and a crucible. But I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, that makes sense. I am excited about this last week of Advent because it just feels like we've all kind of been on a journey this season and so many parts of the chaos of how we exist in our political world, in our social world with the elections and the pandemic have created a particular context for Advent. But before we talk a little bit about that, I'd love to hear about your experience or history with Christmas and Advent. What comes to mind for you when you think about that? And as an adult, what do you feel like was missed or what is resonating to you differently than it did in your upbringing? Yeah, I feel like I was a part of a wave of white evangelicals who in their like late teens, early 20s were like, oh, high church. Oh, the Catholics. Wow, <laughs> that's <laughs> radical. And we sort of came from maybe, I don't know, maybe mega church backgrounds or um, some smaller version thereof and discovered the church calendar. And I think, honestly, my work, so I worked with InterVarsity for uh, eight years and through our region's really strong commitment to spiritual formation. So we would go on these retreats once every semester, take off work, three days of retreat, some silence, some like communal spiritual direction kind of stuff. I actually remember, <laughs> this is bringing back, wow, this is bringing back a memory of a, a particularly salty donor who is a white evangelical male who emailed me very concerned about the Catholic roots of spiritual formation and what I was getting myself into <laughs> as though that were like, <laughs> I don't know, the worst threat or, or something of like, oh, you're going into the woods to pray. Don't do ministry like that. <laughs> it's like, all right. So it was through university that I think I was exposed to Advent and I, I, I loved it. I think probably <laughs> because I am a white female, there's something very Huga about Advent in the way that we practice it often in the West, which is like, and when I say Huga, it's like a Danish or Nordic word for fireplace, cozy, that like something about a warm candle and the sun setting at 4.30 and sort of snuggling up in the winter. So I think there was probably honestly an aesthetic about Advent that I really, does that, is that fair to say? That I really dug and was like, yes, this is great. And, And I pressed into Advent took on a totally different meaning in 2015 when I found out I was pregnant with my first kid. And Mm. just reading the stories and the familiar journey that Mary and Joseph take and working through those texts, but actually experiencing it in your body was a completely different Mm. experience for me. And it moved from like belief and ideas and how lovely to snuggle up and think thoughts to like, I am throwing up. (laughs) And... (laughs) This 
is exhausting. I've never experienced fatigue like this before. And it, it I think just, uh, especially I think being a white American Christian, and I think about this and share about this a lot is that part of the, you know, part of the brutal experiment and project of colonization has made it possible for us to not come into contact with our bodies as white mm. folks. So we don't have to be embodied. It's part of the hubris of it all. And except I think women, white women specifically will experience that through menstruation and possibly pregnancy if they're able to experience mm-hmm. it and want to. So yeah, it was a way to, to be embodied. And that mm-hmm. changed how I experienced Evan. Can you talk a little bit more about the inherent disembodiment of whiteness through colonization? I think some folks uh, might be like, I think I get that in theory, but maybe not in practice. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So in order to to be dominant in the way that Europeans were dominant and to be violent in the way that Europeans were violent. There were ideologies that separated mind from body. Uh, you think about this with enslaved Africans that, you know, the slave Bible took out all the parts of like bodily freedom, exodus, anything about that, but had everything to do with sort of this ethereal, elusive spiritual freedom. Like, well, mm-hmm. we don't see you as fully human. Your bodies are ours, but we can somehow baptize your spirits. Doctrine mm-hmm. of discovery, this idea that these lands are ours for the taking and that the Lord says that and that the people who are here are not people, but are likened to creatures and um, mm-hmm. animals. So sort of this like this way that dehumanizing the other, you're separating out mind from body. And then you're elevating your interpretation of the mind. I'm thinking about enlightenment, you know, mm-hmm. all of these philosophers that that your read on it is the superior way of thinking. And so it all becomes about belief and very little about doing, which sounds great <laughs> until yeah. the fruit that it bears for everyone. And I think the fruit now that it bears, especially for white men, that unless they have chronic illness or fight in wars, they don't come into contact with the capacity of their bodies. Like literally that their bodies have to end at some point. They have to stop at some point. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we can probably get into that yeah. a little bit later. Well, I love what you said earlier, which is that, that Advent changed for you when you stopped, quote, cozying up to thoughts or like cozying up to ideas. Yes. And I think that there's a way that that kind of post-enlightenment obsession with disembodiment makes it so that so much of Christianity and being spiritual and being good and being like Jesus is to be thrown into ethereal thoughts and cozied up to those and to being right and truthful in the abstract, but not actually experiencing what that means for people's bodies, which means that human bodies become a an acceptable sacrifice for the common good that is interpreted through the lens of ideology, thought experiments, and projects, which I think is what we're seeing in the evangelical acceptance of Donald Trump and all of his violence and all of that, is that as long as you're ethereally interested in truth, then what you do to humans' bodies doesn't actually matter because it's not the most important thing. So I hear what you're saying in that. Totally. I mean, it's how you can have a country that is supposedly found on freedom, but has never extended that freedom to everybody. And even and and I would argue even to those who claim it, who yes. claim that they have freedom, are enslaved to their own hubris, narcissism, pride, etc. Yes. Well, and what I keep saying over and over again is that the layers of oppression are always that it marginalizes and harms one group, it privileges another group, but at, below the surface of that iceberg, it harms all of us in these ways that unless we collectively do something, are kind of irreparable. So for like white folks, white folks are dehumanized by racism in the need to be dominant. 
even if they are the people who are dominating, because that was never what human life was supposed to look like, was owning and dominating others' bodies. Exactly. And it and in the way it bleeds into theology, I remember Erna saying, God's job is to be God and ours is to be more human. You know, that the trajectory is not that humans are to try to become like God. And, and then you see sort of a, a whitewashed reading of these texts to be perfected in the faith and all these things that make us sort of... Yeah, this sort of toiling, this human toiling, when the whole point of Advent is that God enters into our bodies and says, this is good. This is good to be in a body. In fact, I'm going to come as a fetus and well, really as an embryo and then as a fetus and then in a squishy uterus and I will be attached to a placenta. But I'm God, (laughs) but I'm human. (laughs) I love thinking about Jesus's placenta. I'm like, what did they do with it? What were the like ancient Near East practices? Where did it go? Um, <laughs> that's pretty amazing that that God decided to do that. And so in that way, I feel like God is baptizing our flesh and being like, no, this is good. This is good. Be more this. Don't yes. try to be me. <laughs> well, and it feels like this kind of remarkable reversal of how Jesus shows up in a time where human empire leaders and their and their kind of cronies i'm so in in our empire that i can only think about it in those terms right now are so trying to be like god to act like god to use violence and force to control their world and to create the world that they most believe should be idealized and that instead of god destroying those leaders or whatever god instead does a reversal of human becoming god to god becoming human and I think begins, we can do some all kinds of theological work around this like great reversal of Babel in Acts 2, but that starts in the, we'll use the theological word, word incarnation at the advent as Jesus does that. But I know that you um, are passionate about placenta, and you just said that you love the idea of Jesus being attached to a placenta. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I think that there's something specific that you bring as a birth worker to a conversation that many of us would literally never think about. Well, yeah. So I think what's pretty wild is that for centuries, our predominant understandings of the story have come from male perspectives and from uh, European male perspectives. So, I mean, all you have to do is go back to Augustine to see what he thought of female bodies, and it's not great. So <laughs> I think we don't have, uh, we have never had that female perspective, someone born in a female body who can actually tell you what goes down. And to this day, birth is so sanitized in our culture that mm. we do not know how to handle what happens in a birthing room. <laughs> and mm. I, when I experienced it in my own body, and then since then coming alongside families and birthing people who experience it in their bodies, there's so much in this lived moment of birthing a human that I think has to teach us. And I would argue has to heal us from a, a toxic patriarchal society that actually could really use some matriarchal modalities. And I see birth as one of those modalities. So, I mean, in the birthing body and I'm, can I go on my little like spiel? So here's my little soapbox that I love to tell everyone who I meet (laughs) if I can, um, which is just the cool way that science I think can show, give us wonder and worship for who God is. So in a birthing body, when a person's in labor, there are two major classes of hormones at work. Uh, The one that causes 
uterine contractions strong enough to birth a human is oxytocin. And oxytocin is a hormone that everyone has, male, female, and in between. It is excreted when we laugh, when we play, when we have joy, when we climax an orgasm during sex. Like it's the same hormone. And that is a hormone that is fueling labor and causing contractions that are strong enough to birth a baby. At the same time, you have a whole class of hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, that happen when the birthing person goes into fight or flight. And it can be like, so it's your reptilian brain, kind of classic. It can be a perceived threat or real threat. It can be like, there is a saber-toothed tiger in the cave in which I'm birthing, or I am afraid that there is a saber-toothed tiger in the cave in which I'm birthing. And either way, your body reacts the same way. And the blood flow from the uterus goes to your hands and your feet to fight, to, to run, or to freeze. And that slow, not only does that stall or like completely stop the labor, it also can make it incredibly more painful. So literally in our bodies, there is a battle between love and fear that is going down before something new is birthed. So I see this in people's bodies all the time. And a huge part of my coaching as a doula is to to help folks learn about their physiology, worship because of it, and start to like take fear head on and say, actually, what does it mean to respond to love in this moment when my body is, is behaving in a way that overwhelms me and literally brings me to the point of death so that new life can come through? So it's like wild to me that that is like what is happening physiologically and we see them that happening socio- sociologically, I think. Yeah, say more about that. <laughs> um, well... <laughs> We often like to think that the opposite of love is hate, but the opposite of love is fear. I think birthing bodies show us that. And in a cultural moment where, I mean, literally today is an interesting day to be recording. So I'm not a witch, but midwives were considered witches and we were all burned back in the day. Um, But a lot of folks, my friends who are witches are really pumped about today because today is December 21st. This is like crazy planetary alignment and like the ushering in of a completely different phase of, I believe it's an air sign. I'm really going to get into territory that I have no authority to speak on, but uh, this is something is happening cosmologically today. That's a totally new alignment than the way that the world and the planets have been in relationships to each other for the last like 200 years. So all that to say, <laughs> the and, and what I've been hearing about this from those folks is this is a time of rebirth. And I think we're seeing that. And I have friends who who prefer not to use the term racial uprising for what happened this summer, but prefer to talk about it as a new birth, as birth pains. We hear Paul write about that in the scriptures, that the earth is groaning like a mother in labor. Mm-hmm. So anytime that something, um, something new, and I I pair this, I kind of mix metaphors here, but I really, I love the metaphor of the the wineskins and the new wine. And I think mm-hmm. anytime that new wine is being poured, that the structures of our society, the wineskins need to change up, there's a birth happening. And birth is otherworldly. It feels, it's a sensation we don't understand. And it feels like we're being pressed beyond what we can even imagine. And mm-hmm. we are, um, but it's love that's doing that, mm-hmm. <laughs> not hate or fear. If I'm able to take it down even further, I think it's just that the reaction that we're seeing from political divisiveness and especially from white Christian folks right now, to me, that's a fear response that Mm -hmm. we're seeing. We're seeing a fundamental uh, reptilian brain fight, flight, or freeze about a fear of the unknown, a fear of rebirth, a scarcity mindset that what happens if 
this new way of being is born and we're left out of it, it's fear. And to that, I think that's why God says so many times throughout scripture, not be afraid, not because hate is the opposite of love, but fear is the opposite of love. And that's the counter tension. Yeah. And that when fear is taken to its farthest extent, what we have is either emotionally fueled hatred or just the hatred that exists because of our systems and structures that are born of our fear. When I think what feels hard to me in this political moment is that, sorry, this is also the love week of Advent. That's why we're talking about love. I realize I didn't actually introduce that as a concept, but obviously that's what we're doing. Uh, One of the things I feel discouraged about in this particular political season is that because of Trumpism and because of these kind of, I don't know, a kind of politic that I don't want to reduce it too much, but that really is about like sticking it to Democrats or like sticking it to liberal people, that the change that's being offered or even hinted at in like a Joe Biden, who's like the most centrist of centrists of all time, is enough to cause white America, especially like evangelical white America, to go into like, tizzy is too small of a word, but to go into just total fight or flight or freeze and having that fear response over something that is like very minimally progressive, if progressive at all. Right, right. And so I think I feel like as you say that call from scripture to not fear is so wild because it doesn't take much. And I think that God has to repeat that over and over again because it's always about change. It's never about like, don't fear. Like it's sometimes it's like, don't fear because someone's trying to kill you. But most of the time when God is telling people to not fear, it's because a social reordering is happening or a social ordering toward this shalom way, this way where the most marginalized are cared for is happening. And it tells me the depth of our chaos in the U.S. that even the most minimal, the the most minimal suggestion of more equity or more freedom for more people is enough to send evangelicals into what I'm going to call a traitorous antichrist political and social ideology is deeply disturbing. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, it threatens the the hubris that has been developed over centuries for white Americans about entitlement and control. And this like stuff I, again, I'm going to drop Erna's name probably a few times, but stuff I love from Erna about this lack of um, this like Disney princess theology, like a lack of neutrality or objectivity. So if you believe that your job is to is that there's like a fixed point in the past that you're constantly trying to strain towards with all of your might and gather people towards and systems and structures to the past, and you have this rushing flow of the Holy Spirit that's constantly doing a new thing. See, I am doing a new thing. See, I am doing a new thing. It's like you can feel the contractions at each one. Like I'm doing a new thing. Things are changing. Things, I mean, practices, ways of being, like curiosity humility, (laughs) listening. These are things that white folks, we are incredibly um, weak in. We don't have those muscles built up. So yeah, any, anything that smacks of threatening that, yeah, you're like on your haunches immediately. And if we use that birthing metaphor, the reality is if you get, if you get in the way of birth, you can unfortunately stall or prolong it. It does not mean the baby's not going to be born. That baby's going to be born but it it can change the timeline. And we see that. I think you and I have lived that in organizations. Like Mm -hmm. we see how whiteness can stall things and slow things down um, in a deeply painful way. And for those who are embodying fear, it will feel more painful to them Mm -hmm. than surrendering to love. Like they will feel that um, in a, in a, in a way that feels exaggerated to those on the outside looking in because they're not yielding, trusting. 
I had a conversation with my father-in-law this summer. He is definitely from a different political persuasion than I am. And I remember he was doing that thing where he was planting the flag behind us being like, but we were, and this was, and it ought to be again. I remember just looking and being like, everything in this world is going to die. And as Christians, we believe in resurrection. So why are we holding on so hard for something that might die? Like, can we trust that things will resurrect? You know, can we try? (laughs) But no, we we can't. And the we I'm using because I'm white is is white Christians. Yes. When I think that in that the for the particular danger for white Christians is that there's a fixed point historically and there's a mythological fixed point in just talking about the Bible as though the Bible is a non time transcendent document that is interpreted through cultures and through perspectives. It's that the Bible had one thing to say, and it's saying it and I'm hearing this critique and I talk about this often as well, but there's, I heard this really popular pastor in Portland, Oregon, talk about how deconstruction is this like thing that, and he's trying to critique the current deconstruction that's happening by saying that there's a healthy kind of deconstruction that we see in the reformers and in Augustine and in the church fathers and all this, like all, and he can't even hear what he's saying and just even listening to those people, I don't think. Mm. And he says, there's a healthy kind of deconstruction that uses the Bible to interpret the culture. But the deconstruction now that we're seeing is that the culture is trying to look back and deconstruct the Bible. But I'm like, buddy, actually, you're not going far enough back in that conversation to ask, what lens am I interpreting the Bible through that makes me believe that my interpretation is a a historic, standalone, good, righteous, holy interpretation. And I think that for white Christians, oftentimes this like fixed point of a white-centric, Eurocentric, capitalistic in our culture centric mm-hmm. Bible interpretation becomes the fixed point by which everything is interpreted through yep. rather than doing what you're saying, which is looking at this new movement of God that happens, yep. which I think then draws us back to Advent because Advent is this new movement of God that's coming through the body and experience in life of this woman, Mary. So can you talk to me a little bit about Mary and her experience? I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, Man, there's so many things that were just kind of glossed over in my childhood about this story. I think consent is one of them, where, where there's sort of this like, God, yes, <laughs> yeah, this, um, yeah, this sort of setting Mary aside as more holy, more pure, extra virgin, <laughs> extra yes. virgin Mary oil to <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I think totally disregards her humanity and. I, w- I mean, in the Magnificat, I mean, it feels like she consents along the way. I don't know how you feel, but like, I think it's important to focus that she she needed to, <laughs> that that's an important part of the process, that that part of her, yes, is a, it's co-creating, it's participating in, it's not, um, it kind of reminds me of Greek mythology, whoever it was, mm-hmm. who was where the, the, the god comes upon her and is like really... <laughs> I mean, we probably can't talk about rape culture on here, but it's really overwhelming. And like, y- you get this sense of of this perpetuating this idea that female bodies only exist to be used. And yes, I feel like what I want to reclaim about Mary is her full participation in this thing. And I'm not even wed to the, I, it, Mary doesn't have to be a virgin in a literal sense for me for any of this to matter. Um, so I don't really care or focus on that too much, mm-hmm. to be honest. But I, I do think that her participation matters. And 
we we have such a we do it with moms to this day mothers it's a big gaslighting where moms will be like this is really hard this sucks and we'll be like you're my hero you're doing a great job and I feel like it's similar with Mary our attitude towards Mary is like oh what a holy blessed woman she really like did a solid for the rest of humanity (laughs) yeah I guess that's why I want people to learn about birth for for so many reasons and for so many political conversations. If you get my drift, I want people to know about birth and what it means because that shit is messy. That shit will take you to the end of yourself. What she said yes to, like I I was watching, there's this um, Pixar adjacent studio that did a movie called The Star that's Mm kind of recent. Um, about the Jesus story and we're watching it with the kids and I get super excited when it looks like Mary's in labor and I'm like Parker that's her uterus contracting that's why she's stopping Parker's my four-year-old and I'm explaining the process and they do that thing where they just like they flip to the next scene and she's wearing the clothes she was wearing and they are unstained and I'm like a why is she wearing clothes she should be naked b there would be blood everywhere everywhere unless like some local innkeeping midwives were like hold up let's come we'll clean you up and like there's so many details of that story that we miss out on and and I guess in a sense why does that matter (laughs) to me that that matters so much because of what human entrance into the world actually looks like and that most people have no idea um and don't see what it looks like because of the way we sanitize birth and that we think we think of birth as a fixed pure entrance and then we think of death as this gruesome bloody exit but your birth and death are very related to one another yes they are both quite gruesome they're both quite bloody (laughs) well and i and i think that like earlier you said something about about rape culture we can talk about rape culture as much as we need to because it's such a prominent part of a lot of evangelical stories but i think the sanitizing of birth narratives is both a pro-life rhetoric tactic that's used to say that like we are perfectly innocent when we're in the womb therefore people shouldn't have control over their bodies and what happens to their bodies which does then have a straight line to rape culture, that people's bodies don't get to be controlled by their own decisions. And so I think you're right that there's this, I see these moments where Mary is consenting to this process that's happening in her. And the sanitizing of her experience actually is a through line of rape culture because it allows us to say that either women's bodies are so virginal that they like need to be controlled somehow to continue to be virginal, or that they're so dirty that they can be used as objects of male consumption. And so I think that there's lots of through lines in how we talk about this birth story, this birth of God story that then also, I think a lot of our mutual friends have this conversation often where like menstrual blood or birthing blood is seen as being dirty, but blood that is like shed for violence is seen in like war is somehow seen as noble and holy. And I think that if we sanitize birth narratives, we can continue to, justify our war and our violence and the bloodshed in those ways as being holy because it seems more related to the cross than bloodshed in birth bloodshed and death for rebirth and resurrection like we've talked about exactly exactly and that is like just a parallel that i love is that when jesus is crucified not only does he bleed but also water gushes out of the side and the scriptures make note of that and when you're birthing you're it's water and blood it's amniotic fluid uh these are and and his mother's watching him so like when, when he's on the cross. So I just, there's so many parallels there for me about birth, death, and resurrection over and over and over again that we miss when we don't actually know what goes on in birth. To the point back, back what we were talking about, about uh, people having power over female bodies is 
and this is why my birth collective called Ezra Birth Collective, because I'm trying to reclaim our original name from the Lord that has way more to do with strength and power. And Ezra really connotes God as a military aid. And I think if you will, if you ever get a chance in your life to witness someone giving birth, you will never again doubt the utter strength and badassery of female bodies or bodies with uteruses. And that is something like you can't, you can't mess with that. If anything, it, it brings us to a place of more mystery where I, I see these rooms of white male politicians with pen in hand making decisions that impact the bodies of millions of women. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can tell that they've never been to a birth before, because if you had been to a birth and you understood the sacred space between life or death that it, that happens there and the like brute strength and also the intensity of what you're asking someone to do when they carry a child, like yes. you would just have way more uh, respect for that shit than we currently do in our culture. Yes. You know, we see a, you see, you, especially now you track a friend with a swollen belly on social media, swollen, swollen, more and more and more. And then you see a fresh, clean baby in a swaddle. Yes. And that's literally what we see from birth. So. And that is the narrative that we're, and, and I think that's part of why, and I don't, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that there's a disservice that's done when we call birth a miracle. When I'm like, birth is a physiological reality that is human. And when we sanitize that process, we consider it to be a miracle that happens, that it just, it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's scientifically fascinating and deeply life-changing to experience. It is a very common thing that happens. Right. Literally. Which is why you would be like everyday miracle. Yeah. I mean, miracle has become such a cloy word and used in such like spiritually bypassing ways. So yes, for that, yes. Uh, maybe, maybe don't do that. <laughs> but is it sacred? Yes. I think so. Yeah. I think there's something we lose when we only see it as a physiological process. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's pretty freaking powerful. Yes. And I think any like life or death process should be sacred. And I think it won't, it's when we lose the sacredness of life and death that we normalize fear and violence and hatred and therefore the opposite of love. Because I think that love is manifest in these processes because of the work and the cost that you pay to bring a human into the world or walk someone out of their life in some way. That's right. Which I think becomes so asinine when we think about the Advent story, especially kind of the virginal part of it, because the miracle to me is not that Mary's a virgin who has a baby. It's not even that she has a baby. It's that the miracle of Advent is that God is closer and better than we expected because God so doesn't look like the rulers of the world who make the lives of the oppressed miserable. It is a miracle that the most powerful being in existence doesn't use that power to exploit, to coerce, to co-opt, to dehumanize, but that that being loves enough the people or the beings that are least like it to show up into the world and to be near them. To me, that is the miracle of Advent. And Mary participates in that miracle in the fullness of her humanity to bring Jesus, who is this, I don't know, I think it'd be very evangelical to say like the proto-human, because I don't actually think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do. But I think that there's a way that as Jesus is brought into the world, that it is the manifestation of the miracle that happens over decades, not just in a single moment of like, the virgin said yes to God. Totally. Totally. And like, 
I don't know, solidarity with our suffering to me, like, especially through the birth piece, <laughs> it's like that's, that's a place where God chose to enter and to be present. That shows us that God is present through every modicum of human experience. So then we were talking about this, I think off offline before we started that the, the mundane and the ordinary, like you said, it's not a miracle. This happens every single day. So like that, that is baptized by God's presence and that God is like, Hey, <laughs> I, I am with you from the beginning of how human life begins. And then the shape of how it forms. And I was a toddler who had to learn how to walk and I had to figure out how to eat food. <laughs> yes. I worked a job that was creating materials with my hands, you know, mm. then I did some cool spiritual shit and then I died, but it's like, I, I feel like Jesus. Yeah. Jesus in that way, is trying to show us what it's like to be human and to say that God is present in that. And honestly, if we're going to talk about theologies we're reclaiming, that's probably been one of the biggest ones. And I think that I, I approach my birth work in this way is like God's co suffering with us is about presence. And I think meaning making mm-hmm. in the middle of a really traumatic existence <laughs> everyone is traumatized by the experience of being human. And I think to have a story to hold on to that God enters into that trauma with us and is constantly resurrecting it where it can be resurrected. Like that's powerful. Well, yes. And that the, the theology, a part of the theology that we reclaim in there is that God doesn't use people as means to ends, but invites people to be fully human in the way that God intended for us to be human together. Mm -hmm. And that in doing so, we see life and healing and change, not just God manipulating and puppeteering for, right? A lot of us who grew up with Calvinist theologies or theologies that say that like God predestined some to eternal suffering or that God it, God has already pre-shaped everything that will happen in your life, actually I think is thwarted in the incarnation of Jesus who affirms a lot of us who are in this place of saying, we're figuring it out. We're figuring it out and we're growing and we're making errors and we're we don't know what's going on and i think for a lot of us who are really displaced right now in the midst emotionally displaced socially displaced physically displaced vocationally displaced i think many of us need the theological affirmation that comes in the advent that is it's messy and we grow and we figure it out and that god doesn't expect us to just will ourselves to a more spiritual seeming reality but rather like you said comes near to us in the ambiguity of it all and says this is what we're doing. Like we're, we're figuring it out. We're growing. God's not hovering above it. God's in it. God's in it. Yes. Well, and every time the disciples in Jesus's, in this Jesus story, try to hover above it, try to lord over, try to domineer, try to create hierarchy. Jesus is like, go vulnerably to the people. Nope. I'm putting your place around that. And so I think that there's this, this reality that not only is God doing the Philippians thing of coming down, taking the form of a servant to the point of death on a cross by the state, that he's inviting his disciples to do the same thing as to not subvert the miracle of Advent, which is God coming lower and lower and lower to be close and doing that alongside people like the parents of Jesus and like the disciples of Jesus. Yes, yes. There are these um, like meta lessons or I, I don't know. I think things that can teach us about about pregnancy in Advent, that Advent is about waiting. And if you know someone who has been pregnant or you've experienced it yourself, there's a, 
<laughs> you know something is happening, but you cannot see it. And it is that is terrifying, actually, with the rate of loss and miscarriage, like mm-hmm. the frequency that, that this thing that's happening to you will not be seen to fruition. Um, it is a tender waiting. It's like a, you feel like you're scrubbed raw on the outside of your body. And I think a lot of us feel that way in 2020 Advent. So there's something about the trusting that something is gestating and something is growing and that new life will come when you can't actually see that to be true. And you're not promised that that will be true. That's like one. And then the capacity thing. So through birth and into postpartum, Mary would have experienced a complete limiting. We see that she was traveling on a donkey beforehand for days. I remember when I was pregnant with my first son and he was really overdue. And you're little, you know how your iPhone tracks your steps. Mm-hmm. I think the day before he was born, it was like 16,000 steps. And I was like, get this effing baby out of my body. And then it drops to eight steps the next day, which were the steps to my bathroom and back to, to pee. <laughs> like there's something about human capacity in this process that's a teacher for us that I know postpartum people all over the world can attest to. Um, and I think the capacity that we've talked about, about infant Jesus. So if we're looking for a story that is not going to challenge us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and to like grind it out to this sort of very capitalist uh, way of making meaning in our life that actually it's presence, it's limited capacity. It's a small thing that is a beautiful thing. And I need to, I need to hear that every advent. Yeah. And the thing that we learn from Mary, like you're saying, is waiting and faith and courage and paying attention to your body. Like, I think the disembodiment of the Advent feels so challenging to me because I'm like, Mary has this profoundly challenging invitation and experience where prior to pee on a stick pregnancy tests, Mary is told a message about what is happening in her body. And then I think she has to pay attention because the only early indication that she really gets, and I don't know, again, I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, but one of the early, only early indications that she seems to get other than this angelic visitation, which I think she could probably talk herself out of being a thing like, yo, that was a whack ass dream. You know, like I think she could really like convince herself out of that thing. But when she shows up on her journey to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth gives her this great affirmation of who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And I, and I wonder if Mary's like, Oh, I guess I am pregnant. Like, like I just wonder if she doesn't know that. And I, yeah. And so I just think that there's a way that that like this waiting involves so much courage and faith and belief in the thing that we know God is doing, even when there is nothing we can do about it. Like, unless Mary goes out and takes some control of her life, there's no way she can make herself more pregnant with God's child. There's no way. And so she's trusting that the process is happening in her in such a way that I don't think a lot of us have the patience to do and that I think Advent really does invite us into. Um, I feel too like for anyone who who gets to sit in Advent and, and be a part of it, it's a reminder that this God sees those who are in their bodies. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm thinking... I'm thinking of the folks who teach me about being in my body. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor being one of them, Adrian Marie mm-hmm. Brown. These are queer black embodied people. I don't even know what to call them. You know, like a white person would be like, they're thought leaders. I'm like, no, they're not. 
their body leaders, yeah. their body leaders. And I'm thinking about trans people who have an experience and are forced to experience their bodies in such a, on the one hand, like excruciatingly painful, but then hopefully like resurrectingly beautiful way that that is something that God is centering in God's yes. story is those who are forced to be in their bodies. And that that's a good thing. Not yes. as the world would say, um, not a disdainful thing. Well, and that's why, like, as we talked about this before we were on too, but I have a portrait of Marsha P. Johnson behind me to remember the necessary embodiment of freedom and liberation and the fight for that for other people. Because I have to learn that from people who are in their bodies more than I am. Because even as a Black woman, I carry so much privilege. And if I don't recognize how that privilege disembodies me and seeks to constantly disembody me by making me more proximate to maleness, to whiteness, to straightness, to, to whatever thing. And it's always trying to force us into some kind of archetype of a cis hetero white man. Then I, then I will miss it. I will miss the work of God because I have to have embodiment modeled for me. It can't just be told to me or banked into my thoughts through banking models of theology and education. It has to be embodied. And so I'm doing the same, I think I'm doing the same work you are, which is turning specifically to trans folks of color, trans women of color specifically and saying, hey, I don't know what this experience is like, but I know that in whatever I am able to learn from you in the least um, consumeristic kind of way, whatever I can learn from what you're putting into the world I need for my own liberation and my own freedom. And I think that's why we always say, and I think this is why Jesus models going to the most marginalized and saying, hey, this story that's being told through your life and your body is the story that I'm telling to all of creation. This story that I'm telling in healing your body and inviting you back into community is the story that I'm trying to tell about all folks and all of creation. And that that story is really different than God came to die so that you can go somewhere else when you're dead. Right, right doesn't make any sense to me no no it doesn't in our current culture these are the goods we don't have is presence <laughs> patience <laughs> commun community around that's like fleshy that sounds kind of weird but yeah. like you know general you know what i'm saying like not a um yeah like a, like a lived a lived practice of of being in our bodies and being in our bodies in community with other people and of course our increasingly virtual world you know makes this sure. even more disembodied and weird and i i guess that's why and i wonder if like in the like rubber band snapping back after this pandemic if people will appreciate that more or be like whoa like we're here in person in the flesh together i can yeah. like touch your hand and i can embrace you and give you a hug that that will be rehumanizing to mm. all of us um and i so because I'm a descendant of colonizers and probably Dutch tradesmen, which is the same thing, I think a lot and I try to practice a lot and I'm really interested in what the rehumanizing story is that God will tell with mm -hmm. descendants of colonizers. And I think that part of it for us that I we're doing in our white um, anti-racist cohorts and subculture is that as at least as Tamise and others would diagnose that because white folks have not loved their neighbors well, it's a direct reflection that we actually don't love ourselves well, that yes. there's a, this is kind of going back to our love versus fear and there's actually a, a deep self-hatred. And that, um, because it's buried so deep, I think white folks are like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, think, think on it <laughs> and listen to it because 
that that shit is real when i think about what the way forward is and why it's so important for white folks to be submissive <laughs> silent <laughs> decentered <laughs> honest and it can't be real like i was going to do some advent stuff this year for Ezra birth collective and it could be just the pandemic maybe i'm just making an excuse but also i was just like i don't feel like my voice is the voice that needs to be added to this conversation mm. right now i feel like um, I'm learning so much from you, Brandy, and from others that I'm just like, I think that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and and doing the faithful work of being with birthing people and listening and letting these things wash over me. Um, not <laughs> not rushing to start an anti-racism podcast as some of my brethren and sestrin are after like 30 minutes in this work. Not, you know, it's just uh, it's um but I, I guess I, I guess just to, to really echo what you're saying about our liberations being caught up in one another, which I'm pretty sure Asada Shakur was on to way earlier mm-hmm. than you and I were. A hundred percent. It's just like that's the best part of the path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess I'm so grateful that God knows that <laughs> and that yeah. Sabbath was built into the the shape and the rhythm of life. To I probably for many reasons, but I think one of which is to remind us that we're human and that we have yes. ends and capacity. And when we don't do that, everything becomes idolatry yes. uh, really quickly because yes. <laughs> we start worshiping other shit instead of. Well, yes. And in that way, the Sabbath is given as a gift to formerly enslaved, marginalized people to remind them that they are not the thing that marginal, that, that they are not the thing that oppressive people have told them that they are. And I think for a lot of us, because we are not directly enslaved, especially for, I think, white folks, we don't recognize the things that hold us or that hold y'all. Like, we don't recognize that the things that are happening in the Exodus story, in Pharaoh, the fear of loss of control, the fear of loss of power, the fear of loss of status or structures or wealth building engines, the fear of not being the one to get to diagnose how problems are fixed or of not being the expert, like all of those things play out in dehumanizing us in a way that rest and Sabbath and letting go of our need to produce and to control can really shape in us. And I think that there's so many ways that as we are more disconnected from each other, the capacity for that kind of controlling, that kind of is really high. And I wonder what would happen if we would stop and ask, like, what are the things I need to let go of right now? Well, all of that being said, I think that there is a reality that how we, like you're saying, how we love ourselves will reflect on how we love God and how we love one another, because those are all intimately tied together and not compartmentalized separate things. And so as we let go of all of the things that keep us held hostage to whiteness, to expectation, to all those things that in the Advent, there's an invitation to let God be God and to be human and to be human, to let go of the things that aren't serving us and not just to discard, but to be free, to be free of things that are not helpful. And so I think for some of us, we know what those things are. It's really scary to let go of stuff, to let go of dreams and passions and people, but also to recognize that our freedom is bound up in our ability to say yes and no, to have boundaries, to consent to the type of life we want to live. And a lot of us have never felt like we've had that option before. And I think that there's an invitation in Advent to have that option. Yes. Amen. Amen. Ooh, Lord. I mean, just to be annoying, but back to oxytocin, I'm telling you that that is, it's like a carnal human um, tension that we sit in, in our bodies between 
oxytocin and cortisol between love and fear and what you 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 bear the fruit of that you and i think <laughs> for my ancestors over generations for your ancestors over generations so um i'm thinking a lot these days about what being a good ancestor will look like and um how do i start to sew this into like it's all well and good to sit on a podcast and say this stuff but i'm really trying to think about how this forms my family life my white sons um their yeah like their ability to love themselves so that they will love others well and not mm -hmm. uh, continue the unrepented of sin from generation to generation so yeah and that is good and hard work Ooh, honestly yeah, at the end of the day like i really reject because i'm like a whatever wave white feminist i'm like oh motherhood uh, and then it's really funny that i started like a birth thing but i <laughs> but in that like i will say that parenting i'm realizing in very live space and time is like one of the most radical things that i'm doing and i want to just broaden that that anyone who is shaping the lives of the next generation is one of the most powerful things we can be yeah. doing and you can't do that without inner healing and work you yes. just you keep playing that shit out over and over yes so. and i think i wonder in that what it would look like to bring people into a movement who weren't starting from the place of their family taught and imposed traumas and self-hatred and self-loathing and if we actually brought healthy people in to create healthy social change because right now i see a lot of unhealthy people trying to produce social change and we're doing the best we can and that's fine i'm one of those people but i wonder what it would look like to have more people doing the radical work of and in parenting that we wouldn't have to be doing the work as we are through and in the chaotic cesspool of our trauma that isn't our fault but exists so as we as we close out i i hear us talking a lot about this this oxytocin concept of this this kind of tension between fear and love i think a lot of us know what it feels like or looks like to make decisions out of fear or to live our lives out of fear can you give us a little bit of an apologetic for what it looks like to make our decisions out of love instead. Well, just sitting in the body I sit in, I'm probably the least qualified person to answer that question. So I'm just <laughs> going to start out that way. Uh, second way, <laughs> what I'm learning from indigenous folks, queer folks, and black folks about this is I think that um, when I think about making choices out of love, it's like an abundance thing. So it's not a striving scarcity uh it's, it is, it's that kind of perfect synergy between there's love for others, there's love for self, there's enough for everyone, everyone eats. Um, I think when I think about this in birth, uh, it is like a yielding trust to creator that um, the sensations that you're experiencing will bring you to the end of yourself, mm -hmm. but that ending will be a beginning. So I, it doesn't mean that to live in love and to let love flow through you is this like esoteric free of suffering experience it's not it's not but it it does seem to be um yeah the ability to have like I guess generational perspective on like mm -hmm. the life you're living um yeah. I begin and end uh especially if you do anything related to like people's bodies like you're I think we hear this with doctors like a god complex can develop and um, I just think about boundaries of like, we're all limited humans bumping into one another. <laughs> we all begin and end somewhere. So like, what does that mean for me to love myself enough to honor my limits so that I'm loving the person next to me and I'm not 
um, conflating myself with them or like mm-hmm. oozing into them in an unhealthy way. Uh, this is what I can be for you. And this is what I can't. And just to bring it personally, like I have a really, uh, I, I had a broken family of origin experience, a lot of pain. I'm in good relationship with my parents today. Um, but part of getting there took setting, setting down some serious boundaries that were incredibly painful mm-hmm. when uh, in sort of a house impacted by troubling relationship to alcohol. It's a pretty, you know, codependency is a pretty common mm-hmm. result. And um, the lane of those boundaries felt so shitty, but the fruit that resulted of saying like, I'm actually not willing to live on the other side of your poor choices. And I think of this as a white mm. person with black people and and sort of our dynamics today. And I think for folks who are oppressed, who are able to in whatever way when they are whatever, whether it's a cer- certain social class or place or however they're able to find choice, are able to say, I'm not willing to live on the other end of your poor choices and mm. consequences. And we start to put these boundaries up. I think that's like one of the most loving things yes. we can do for each other and for ourselves. Yes. To start healing. So yes. I, that's an, I guess I didn't expect to go there, but I'm thinking a lot about boundaries when I think about love. And I, but I think in the boundaries, I'm also thinking about abundance and yeah, God's ability to do far more uh, than we could ever imagine with that. Yeah. And I think in that, that's a reinterpretation of Jesus's, like, there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down one's life for one's friends, that I think that we often interpret that passage as being about boundarylessness, rather than being about honoring our own humanity, that we would lay down our motives, our objectives, to allow other people to be fully themselves. Because I think as a minister, I really, one of the things I most regret in my ministry is that I was unboundaried and I expected students and people I led to be unboundaried too, and therefore strip them of their own humanity. And as I watch folks have mental health crises, I'm aware that I have contributed part in part to that, that epistemology, that worldview, that way of knowing that says, we go to our limits because it's spiritual. We go to our limits because it's holy. When really, the laying down one's life for one's friends looks far beyond being boundaryless for the sake of quote unquote the gospel, but is rather this broader, more expansive thing that we do together. And so I think for me, uh, one of the things that I'm figuring out how to live out of love is to practice mutual aid and knowing what is enough for me and how to share. Um, I think Gen Z folks are doing mutual aid shit that I don't think most of us could have imagined. And I think I find myself falling into the beauty of that and falling in love with that way of being that says like there is enough and recognizing that like secular Gen Z activists look more like the early church than most Christians do. I think I'm affirming, I'm learning to affirm the goodness of all things and to recognize that my taught need to dominate makes it impossible to love because I don't think that there can be love in domination. And so I have to ask the question in the decisions I make and the vocational moves I make and how I talk to people, am I seeking to dominate for my own consumption or good? Or am I seeking the mutual benefit, the mutual aid, the mutual development of all people and all of the the earth and creation and the community of creation, as Randy Woodley would call it? And I think in asking, do I have a need to dominate in this conflict? Do I want to dominate to be right? In how I use my money, do I want to dominate do I want to just build and build and build so I feel secure? I think for me to make decisions out of love is actually to make decisions that pull me away from domination. Because I think that in the Advent story, that's what we see is that 
God is showing up not to dominate, but to be alongside. And if we are to be like God, to be Christ-like, as if we want to be evangelical about it, it is to come alongside and to choose away from the path of domination that circles back to what we talked about before that says, I am God and I do what I want and letting God be God and ourselves be human and to do that by seeking the goodness of the community of creation together. Mm. Oof. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, Is there anything that you want to plug anything people should know about that you've got going on? I just want to say I'm honored. (laughs) So thank you. Um, it's really great to be with you and to have this conversation and yeah, so kind of on, on the vein of learning how to love and, um, trying to heal. <laughs> I'm part of a pretty motley crew of folks who are trying to heal from some pretty painful experiences in, um, yeah, white American evangelicalism. And my friend and brother, Jeremy Ogumba and I have a little podcast called The Rooted Dialogue. So you can check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're, I feel like we're like your little nephew or something, like very similar <laughs> ethos. Uh, Jesus, empire, power, justice. We're, we're putting a mic to those conversations. And, but I think what will be distinctive about our little space is just place. You know, we're in Rhode Island. And so we're trying to <laughs> trying to um, <laughs> highlight uh, people who are local to us. So that will be a part of that. Also offline, I was saying what a horrible uh, Instagram influencer I am uh, or am not, but you can follow Ezra Birth Collective on Instagram, Easy ER Birth Collective and our website if you want to know more. Um, and especially if you're in the area and you want to hire a doula who will also uh, use a reparation funding model. I'm your girl. So Perfect. come at me. Let's go. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Yes. Bless you. Bye, baby. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology and our last of the year. Y'all, we made it over six months on this journey together. And I'm so grateful that Advent has been the season that we've been together doing that all. If you want to give us an Advent or a Christmas gift, you can subscribe, rate, and review wherever you find your podcast. It takes about 60 seconds and goes a long way to helping folks find the podcast and keeping us on people's radar, which I really appreciate. If you want to become a sustaining member of what we do, feel free to join us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash brandynico. We have all kinds of giveaways and things that we do over there, as well as some extra resources and more coming in 2021 for sure. You know, people have described 2020 as a dumpster fire which I feel like is maybe offensive to dumpster fires. And I know that there will be no magical turn in 2021, but I am honestly hoping for our community that we would experience holding the tension of joy and suffering and chaos and pain and goodness and everyday moments of knowing that we are loved and cared for. Because in doing so, I think in 2021, we'll be able to do a little bit better together.